and this is what I love about the Jewish tradition, is the rigor of debate and conversation and engaging with text and tradition. How do we let those things flourish in a time where there are so few spaces where that kind of conversation is welcome and where it's so desperately needed? From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoidi. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Kasper Turquil, CEO of The Nearness, which offers courses in spirituality and self-inquiry for all in small groups of people who don't fit into traditional religious boxes and co-founder of Sacred Design Lab, a research and design consultancy centered in spirituality. Today, we speak about Casper's work in seeking to create a new structure of community experience that uses the ease and accessibility of the internet while also building local connections that become deep and meaningful friendships. We dive into what the spiritual leadership of the post-COVID world looks like and which models of community we can learn from in creating spiritual belonging. We also talk about the importance of the Jewish community asking itself the hard, uncomfortable questions about where it's going, like what the boundaries of Judaism should be in the 21st century. Take a listen. So, Casper, the, the landscape of religious experiences and religious belonging is changing dramatically. And I'll start with a hypothesis and you'll tell me if that's correct. <laughs> My hypothesis is that we, and when I say we, I mean the Jewish community, but the world in general, we're not really equipped to provide spiritual and religious responses to the challenges of the 21st century. In the Jewish world, which you're familiar with, We have an ideological landscape that was basically created in the 19th century. All our denominations, from ultra-Orthodox to Reform, they're all in a way Reformed. In other words, they're all a product of the clash between Judaism and traditional Judaism and modernity. Jews created those responses as a way to adapt or respond to the modern world. And they go from rejection to adaption with all the different shades in between, but they were definitely designed for that time and age. And they served as well, but it seems to be that we don't have the ideological, religious, philosophical, theological responses to the mm -hmm. challenges of the 21st century. Do you agree with that hypothesis? <laughs> you studied the issue more than I did. <laughs> Well, I'm no historian, so I should be careful what I say, but I, I certainly find your argument compelling. And certainly the structures, the polity, the decision-making bodies of religious institutions are made in an image of a time that we are no longer in. And I think we massively underestimate the impact of the internet on society and therefore also on 
religion and spirituality. In particular, I think there's just an enormous shift in how we understand where authority comes from. And so now that we all read other people's reviews rather than an expert's opinion on a restaurant or a product that we're buying online, I think we're starting to think about those questions of authority in a whole different way. The wisdom of the crowd over the wisdom of the expert, although perhaps COVID challenged that a little bit. And so thinking through the way in which denominational structures are built to replicate the kind of traditional industrial age organization, it's just a very different world that we live in. So I think there's certainly a clash of paradigms. And I agree with you that as we look forward, that's only going to change even more so. One of the things I always think to myself is that one of the biggest, most important jobs that religion might have in the 21st century is to help people know what it means to be human in an age of technology where the difference between human and non-human is going to become increasingly difficult to navigate. Yeah, a lo lot to unpack in, in that <laughs> short statement, and we will. But before we go there, tell me a little bit about yourself. What made you focus on this area? Yes, it's a, still a surprise to many in my family. So I grew up in England. My parents are both Dutch. So I was a Dutch-speaking little kid in, in England and didn't grow up religious at all. My parents hadn't grown up going to church. My grandparents, I don't think either. And so religion, you know, Holland is such a secular country. Religion was really absent in its institutional form. But I went to a Waldorf school, a Steiner education, which some listeners may be familiar with, which is very filled with ritual and has a strong community around it. Lots of singing, lots of nature. We were burying <laughs> compost from cow dung in cow horns and then digging them up the next year to use as fertilizer. Like there are all sorts of really interesting kind of pagan, Christian, vaguely Hindu inspired rituals going on in this school. And what it gave me was an appreciation of those cycles of time and the strength of community life without having the kind of institutional, perhaps even dogmatic strains that a lot of people navigate as young people. And certainly as a gay kid, my reaction to institutional religion was, if you'll pardon my uh, language, like, fuck off. <laughs> you know, like, I was not interested in it because it wasn't interested in me. And so that was a very simple rejection. But as a young professional, kind of in college and afterwards, I was really involved in mobilizing young people around climate change. And I think like a lot of activists had that moment of realizing that the impact I could have as a single person on a global historical epic catastrophe was way smaller than being able to solve it. And I felt overwhelmed by it and had that moment of hopelessness where I started to ask, well, how are these leaders who I most respect sustaining themselves? They're all meditating, although they all have some sort of spiritual practice. And why has religion been so interested in culture building and behavior change over centuries? Oh, it's to help people remember things that are hard to do by themselves. And so I started to connect the dots with what I was interested and passionate about in terms of justice and environmental issues with the with religious and spiritual traditions and found myself in divinity school as a gay atheist and uh, haven't looked back since. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a journey. And it is in a way kind of an emblematic journey, right? I think the, what your journey shows is that the spiritual yearning is still yeah. there. It's still yeah. like you still felt you needed something, right? Like and you needed another dimension to existence beyond the imminent, right? Yeah. 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 And this is definitely something I've noticed with other people. And sometimes it's because of a, a, a real traumatic loss or a, a change in life that's very dramatic. And sometimes it's more a slower 
kind of ennui. And this is the journey I would say from people who didn't really grow up with much towards something. There's a different journey for people who grew up with something often rejected it and then find their way back in a different way to a newer version or a different interpretation of something old. And so both those kind of narratives are ones that I certainly recognize. But I think what's different from, you know, that those are not new patterns in any way, but what is new, at least in terms of what the data is telling us on a national scale, and this is beyond the Jewish context specifically, but in previous generations, maybe when people had children, there was an expectation, oh, that's when they'll come back to church or that's when they'll come back right. to the congregation. And that's not happening anymore. And of course, if you're not raised with anything, there's no back to be going to. And so what we're finding ourselves in now is this kind of scattered seeking, I think, where people are bricolaging, putting their own spiritual lives together, a little bit of this, because they found a fabulous app, or they took a wonderful yoga class, or there's an incredible local community that they've joined, but it doesn't quite do everything. And so they're also going to this podcast or this book or whatever. So let's dig into that for a second, because I think it strikes a chord here. There seems to be, let me put it this way, modernity opens sort of the floodgates of personal emancipation. Individuals liberate themselves from the yoke of the king, from the yoke of God, from the yoke of organized religion, and they increase their personal freedom in concentric circles, right? In early modernity, people have a limit to choose, let's say, or in the 20th century, you could choose between, let's say, Christian denominations, and a lot of people did, or between Jewish denominations, or you could even just change your religion, right? Like it wasn't massive, but a lot of people were doing it. In other words, there was choice between packages, right? You have a package was conservative Judaism, a package was reformed Judaism. Now in late modernity, or however we're gonna call this stage of human development, you're not choosing, you're making it, yeah. right? I think it's a massive difference, right? Like a young person will not only seek to choose between prepackaged options, but it's going to just try to build their own with things from many different traditions. Yeah, that's right. And I think Robert Bella's work has been influential for me here because he talks about this kind of pendulum swing. It's always cyclical, never just linear, but this pendulum swing of, yes, a society where the structures are really clear and the roles within those structures are very clear, the hierarchies, the ways in which you engage across those lines of hierarchy. And in those roles, we find a lot of fulfillment or a lot of meaning in fulfilling those roles. But if you don't fit in those roles, you're really screwed. And again, as right. a kid, I felt that. And what where we've been swinging to now is exactly as you say, this place of it's a mushy mess where, yes, there's a lot of capacity to self-author your experience and identity and interests and relationships. But A, it's complex. B, it's exhausting. <laughs> right. And C, the more personalized your particular matrix of things are, the more isolated you are too. And I think right. that for me has always been the locus of interest where as we see the decline of of kind of containers of connection, right, whether it's congregations or civic institutions like the Lions or local bowling clubs, right, those classic examples, yes, you may have more agency in terms of identity and, and, and creating your own experience. But for a lot of people, it's never fully realized, I think partly because it's too much. And so to try and come up with everything by yourself is beyond what anyone is capable of, especially in the hours that we work and the other stresses and strains of modern life. So I think where a lot of people are landing is with a 
Meh. I think I can own perhaps some of the, um, you know, with the How We Gather paper that I wrote with Angie Thurston in, gosh, seven years ago, eight years ago. I hope we didn't oversell it. But, you know, we talked about CrossFit and we talked about SoulCycle and we talked about makerspaces and workplace initiatives. But none of those fulfill the fullness of what a congregation had done before. And so there's still a lot missing, even when people find a wonderful Headspace meditation app or a fantastic men's group. It, it's never going to provide the fullness of everything it's that a right. traditional congregation did. I mean, there's two aspects to that, right? Like one is because it's a free choice, it is always subject to second guessing. Yeah. Meaning some people in the Jewish community may say, you know what, I'm tired of choice. I'm tired of deciding for myself. Yes. I'm going to a Satmar group and whatever. But that's a choice. Yeah. So there's yeah. no escape from choosing. <laughs> and even the choice not to choose is yeah. subject to regret. Which is why accountability is such a theme in so many of the desires when we interview people, because they want to be held accountable as an expression right. of care, not to be bashed over the head with it, but to say like, hey, you can't just choose to leave us. We love you. <laughs> like we rarely hear that. Yeah. You're so right to pick up on that. But then the other element, I mean, I want to pick up on something you said. You said it's exhausting to be mm -hmm. building yourself all the time. And it reminds me of a book called, I mean, it's a French book it's called La Fatigue d'être soi, The Weariness of Self, The yes. Tiredness of Being Yourself by, by yeah. psychiatrist Alan Ehrenberg. And, and he basically says that there was always in history, there was melancholy, there was moods and whatever. But he says there is a particular modern disease, which is this mixture of hmm. anxiety and depression that stems from this exhaustion of all the time needing to create yourself and the way you judge yourself. Because if you're creating yourself, you're also of judging course. yourself. You know, a peasant in the Middle Ages had no regrets because he had no choice. He wouldn't second guess his choices because there was none. He's not a pop star. He's not a CEO. He's not a... And now you feel like on, there's a paradox here. You, yeah. you feel you can choose everything. By the way, not only that, the message that society gives you all the time is you can be all you be. You have to right. like, especially it. in America. Yeah, especially <laughs> in America. And then it is a recipe for a sense of permanent feeling unfulfilled and inadequacy. And I think, and especially if you're not conforming. So how do we have our cake and eat it too? Meaning nobody wants to go back to the Middle Ages. And it's impossible. Even if you want it, it's impossible. And you see that all the attempts of like fundamentalism and I mean, they, yes. they don't work. Either they don't work or they end in tragedy, like they cost lives. But on the other hand, we obviously need something. How do we arrive to a synthesis between the best things of modernity and the things that we lost yeah. in modernity? That's a great question. And I don't think there is necessarily an answer that will work now that will work forever, nor do I think that there is one answer that you start with, and that's the kind of end state for now. So where my mind has gone is really trying to think about scale, leadership, and sequencing. And so one of the big things I think that I, I feel confident about <laughs> is that the scale of community, when we look at congregations, and you can mostly tell that by the size of the building, like there's just a, a broad sense of like, well, a couple hundred people or something like that has been the scale of a congregation. It's place-based, it's denominationally affiliated, it meets at the same time each week. There's paid leadership, there's professionals involved. I think a lot of that is going to change. And so my interest has been in a much smaller number of people gathering together in small groups, but doing that in a sort of network of small groups. And this is what we're trying to build at the nearness is trying to figure out what this can look like. Secondly, I think those small groups do not need to meet in person all the time. In fact, I think 
it's easier to start in a digital arena because it's safer, it's more accessible. It speaks to that language of choice, right? If I don't like it, I can just leave. It has that safe kind of initial first step. And the invitation to join the small group is time bound. So our journeys last eight weeks. We say sign up for eight weeks. And I really think that the small groups have to be peer-led if it's going to be scalable to reach the same kind of numbers that we want with the traditional congregational structures. So I, I really believe that the scale is going to shift. I think the type of leadership is also going to be extremely different. Instead of having a sort of teaching, content creating, rabbinic figure, I think it's going to be much more about anyone who can bring people into relationship, into some sort of container of connection over an amount of time, and then curate the best content that other people are creating. Some people are already doing it after COVID. Absolutely. I mean, after COVID, one of the things that are happening is that quality got democratized, right? Like, Absolutely. Meaning, if I'm already doing the service in Zoom... Why am I going to the bad local congregation right. where there's a perfectly, fantastically lit, filmed, recorded, right. prepared... Right. Absolutely, it makes total right. sense. And, and then maybe the local rabbi, instead of fighting that, should say, I'm going to redefine Absolutely. my role. And I'm going to say, yeah. it is not going to be about competing with David Wolpe or Sharon Browse. It, yes. It's going to be about curating the best and then yes. curating the community experience of dealing with that content that I don't have to produce. Exactly, exactly. It's architecting the relational infrastructure in the local space. Just completing the vision of that small group journey, starting digital, and then here's the piece that is exactly aligned with what you're just saying, and then bringing that into in-person relationships. And so that's what we're trying now as well. It's like you do these eight-week journeys and then you end up with an in-person gathering with your small group and then with all the other small groups that have been meeting locally. So that really you're only gathering with the hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe three, four times a year, which by the way, is very reminiscent of the biblical pilgrimage celebrations where just a few times a year, you would travel to be with the collective whole. And in the meantime, you'd be with the local community. With the local, like you pray in your village synagogue. Exactly. And have you seen this being tried, uh, working in some, it doesn't have to be Jewish. I think there's signals of this all over the place. It doesn't necessarily fit always into a religious or or, or the whole concept doesn't always fit into one organization. But I, I think the rise of things like, I mean, of course, the kind of classic Burning Man example is already out there, but I'm really interested in, in things like the convention culture, the way that we now have remote teams or we have content like RuPaul's Drag Race, right? This really popular drag show where then a couple times a year there are these conventions where all the queens come together and all the fans come together and it's a gathering of the faithful and then people go back and consume the content digitally by themselves but still mediated through whether it's digital spaces like chat rooms or comment sections or whatever it is whether that's sustainable over time is we need to see well but here's the thing i think financially it is more sustainable over time because you have i mean at least in that case it's been very successful but in terms of the in terms of the religious context, I mean, I look at the neighborhood central synagogues efforts here because they were experiencing this as one of those excellent content creators, right? Wonderful stream services. They doubled the size of the congregation, at least during COVID, because they had all these people watching the streams from way outside of Manhattan. And they built then a relational infrastructure, which they called the neighborhood, for people who lived far away, but still felt connected to the congregation. And those people were Jews paying members. 
The total wasn't quite the same as the IRL members, but they were paying money for the experience. I think there was noshing with neighbors was one event that happened every month. There was tech study, there were small groups, there was all sorts of programming built for that community specifically. And I think that model is a really interesting signal of what's to come. This is fascinating. (laughs) I think one of the things that I've learned from the work with the nearness over the last couple of years is digital only also doesn't work. You need that rhythm of sequencing the digital to the in-person where the relationships then flower and blossom and you have this beautiful moment of like, wow, everyone is real. And then that sustains you through the next eight, 12 weeks, whatever it is of the next digital journey. But you're a pull from the rope a little bit. Like you were saying before that it's a small congregation, 200 is too big, etc. And I agree on one level. On the other hand, you you have these mega churches, like 10,000 people. Like how do these two coexist? Well, it's interesting. And I will say this is a particularly Jewish question because within Christian circles, there's a real lack of faith within the mega church model. Because first of all, they are absolutely centered on a charismatic individual. They have a lifetime, which is very well documented, that always ends in decline. Or in scandal. Or in scandal, indeed, or just a straight up federal investigation into abuse or financial mismanagement. But for the time that they do work, most of them often have a small group program that's really flourishing. So I think one of the best is the Saddleback example, Rick Warren's church in California, where I I think at its height, 50% of its members were in small group programs. But there's certainly a a decline in those congregations, and they're very fickle. So when a new one comes to town, yes, there may be explosive growth, but it's at the expense of the other megachurch that is now in decline. The Southern Baptist Convention, which the denomination that is most associated with these megachurches, although many of them are non-denominational, as they say, is itself in decline. So I really don't think this is some sort of golden silver bullet that will stop that. Are the megachurches more much of American Christianity in general, more a reflection of America than of Christianity, meaning 100%, 100%. Is it like a functional way of putting a veneer of religiosity in your life when in fact you're not wrestling with any of the values of modernity? Like you, yeah. it's still okay to have a lot of money, it's still okay to have guns, it's still okay to be whoever you want to be, but you read quote-unquote scripture once again. That's not a criticism, right? That's an observation of, hasn't America created a religion that is functional to, to the American way of life rather than the other way around? No doubt. And I think more and more there is, there's really a clear critique of the kind of Christian nationalism and white nationalism that's embedded in so many of those structures. But we live in this kind of strange, false memory of thinking that American religion and certainly American Christianity is this kind of 1950s white picket fence moment when really it has a much more interesting and rugged history. Congregational belonging was much, much lower if you go back a couple hundred years further, in part because people just couldn't access <laughs> the buildings because they lived far away. And so th- this idea of like an enduring white steeple church on the green and that this was the picture of America is certainly a false one, but it is the image in which I think a lot of contemporary Christianity has been created. And it's frankly why it was 
it's been so unsuccessful, I think, in the last 20 years is because people would still affiliate in terms of surveys of saying, yes, I'm Presbyterian, yes, I'm Catholic, yes, I'm whatever. But as Christianity was weaponized in politics in the 90s, especially with the moral majority and focus on the family, anti-women, anti-gay, in a way that people felt like this doesn't represent who I am. I no longer want to be associated with these institutions. That's when you see this dramatic self-reported identity shift But the patterns of attendance are a much longer story. And we're now for the first time in recorded history in a situation where fewer than half of the American population attends a congregation, which is a huge shift. I'm always interested in these surveys that say, oh, whatever, 60 million people define themselves as Christian evangelicals. And probably they've been told they're Christian evangelicals because they're right wing and they actually never went right. to church. Well, that, that's something with the Trump phenomenon that that's been particularly interesting is that yeah. there is a, an unusually large segment of the kind of MAGA movement that claims exactly as you say, an evangelical Christian identity, but is much less likely to go to church than an evangelical who isn't part of the Trump movement. So you're seeing the identity and affiliation language without the belonging, which to me helps explain all of the QAnon and the kind of MAGA loyalty, because that was the central circle of belonging. But it's not uniquely a phenomenon of the right, although right and left these days are so... What does that mean? (laughs) Exactly. Religion has been instrumentalized by politics for many years on the left as well, like liberation theology and stuff like that. In the Jewish community, we do see a lot of the bear hag of politics of religion, like the whole, of course, you're familiar with the term tikkun olam. And and sometimes I think that many liberal congregations, they became 99% advocates for liberal policies, which is fine, but are we losing something about the hard wrestling with religion, with the concept of God, with the concept of normativism, when all you do in your synagogue is talk about racial equity and immigration and gender. I mean, as important as those issues are, I'm just saying it's incomplete. Are we losing something by that reductionism? Yeah. This is a question in my mind. Like I'm wrestling with this myself right now, which is like, is that just a small percentage of the population that like wants to be religious? Like in the way that you're describing, right? Those wrestling with the deep questions of connecting the dots between our inner lives and our outer lives and what is demanded of us and what can we give and what do we owe one another and what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes I wake up and I feel like the future of religion is just small (laughs) and like that's going to be okay. And then other days I wake up, and this was partly informed by the experience of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Project that I did for many years, where we were having those conversations, but the premise of the conversation was a fan conversation, not a religious conversation. And that resonated with tens of thousands of people who were listening, who would never have sought out a spiritual or religious thing, but they just loved these books and they loved talking about the characters and the story and what it meant. And suddenly they were doing our version of Lectio Divina, Chavruta and Pades and these things that they would never have sought out, but ended up loving. And so some days I wake up and I'm like, it's really just about how we frame the invitation and set the table. But that's a conflict in my own heart that I have not reached a conclusion on. So, because maybe in the 
self-help generation. <laughs> the right. Self-help. Like we live in a world that everything has to serve you. Like everything has to mm. make you feel exactly. better. Yes. And I, I see it in philanthropy where people, much of the motivation to do philanthropy is to look for affirmation of the self for self-expression, yeah. right? It's not yeah. about, yes, you're doing good, but you also want to say something about yourself by doing that. Yeah, what matters to me. Yeah, exactly. What, and religion has these two elements, right? Is that the element of, yeah, I'm looking for affirmation. I'm looking to feel good, but I'm also challenged. I'm also like seriously challenged. And I'm wondering whether we went very light on the ladder. You don't want to be challenged. You want to be affirmed. This is where for me, there's writers like Andy Crouch in the Christian space who come from a much more conservative very thoughtful evangelical space that, that certainly than I would ever place myself. But I've, I'm compelled by those questions because if we are religious and not changed by it, then have we been religious? There has to right, be right. a formative element to it. And I, I think if, perhaps if religion one of the reasons- is telling you is telling you all that you want to hear, 100%. you're not hearing God, you're hearing yourself. Exactly. I, one of my yeah. favorite phrases, I think I heard it from a Baptist preacher who said, God loves you just the way you are, but too much for you to stay the same, which I just love. But I think one of the reasons maybe why that's so frightening is because people experience these questions by themselves. This for me is why the community question is so important. Frankly, myself too, I'm too scared to do it alone. We need each other to risk, to try, to see examples of people who've done it and it worked, right? The intergenerational model of leading by example, of people sharing their testimony and their stories. That's the function of the community is to help us know what's possible. And by ourselves, all we can see is the difficult, in Dutch, we say the mountain of rice that you have to eat before you get to the world of candy floss. And who wants to do that by themselves? You know the Jewish community pretty well and the the, the secular space and the Christian space. Is there something that we in the Jewish community are missing that is happening Mm -hmm. in the world and we don't, or in the world of Christian denominations, in the world, like, is there, and I think we're, I don't, I'm not part of the crowd that said that, oh, you were doing everything wrong. I think we have amazing stuff, but is there something that we're not paying attention to? Well, I will affirm your first part, which is that the Jewish space is leaps and bounds ahead of any other religious space that I've seen in the United States, mostly because there's a familiarity with change over time, that there is not the sense that this is the way it's always been done, because in recent memory, it had to change. And so we know it will change again. Um, And so I really appreciate the creativity and investment that uh, Jewish leaders put into these kind of questions, because you do not see that replicated at the same scale elsewhere. In terms of maybe areas that demand more questions, I have very mixed feelings (laughs) (laughs) about the willingness to pay for Jewish experiences, that there are wonderful programs and opportunities where essentially everything is paid for young people, especially. Right. And there is such a, it's if I may use this, in a way, no? It's I think so. I think so. Right. Or at least it's a danger. The word I was going to say, there's such a desperation that to cling on to not just the tradition, but how the tradition used to be, because I think tradition is right. always alive and changing. And so that there's a fear I think, from institutional leaders about trusting, and I'm going to use my language here, but trusting the faithfulness of a next generation of what Judaism looks like. I see that in different religious contexts, there is a little more spaciousness in not just the kind of the models of how to gather but models of what it means to be authentically Jewish. And I I see a lot of anxiety in the Jewish space there in a way that maybe there's more freedom in different contexts. Again, for good reason. But I think that's who counts as Jewish 
what is Judaism? Who gets to decide? Those are the questions where I see people go, (laughs) when when we start to ask those questions. But I mean, my experience is that we actually have avoided these questions. Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't, well, because they lead to conflict and who wants to be in conflict and who wants to be in conflict. And I think probably it's a clearly post-Holocaust phenomenon, which is that continuity becomes survival, becomes a value yeah. on unto yeah. itself. Like Emil Fagenheim was said, nobody called mere the Jewish survival. It's not mere survival. Survival is a value in a, unto itself. I'm, for example, I mean, a crusade, to use an infamous <laughs> term, against the term Jewish identity, because... Yeah. Jewish identity has been a sort of a placeholder word that we use in order not to define what Judaism is. What is this program for? Jewish identity. Well, what does that mean? Well, yeah, yeah, identity. Yeah, but wait a second. And maybe it was useful at some point. Yeah. I think that people now want to define it. They want to say in this open marketplace of ideas and things like you can't just win it with something that is not defined. I mean, this is always an interesting question, but my own spiritual life has been deeply influenced by Jewish friends and housemates and mentors and reading Heschel and others. And I really was sad to see how little reaction Amichai Lalavi's paper Joy got, because Uh I found it such a creative and stimulating read this idea of between Jew and Goy, there is this other category of joy, like yeah. someone who loves and is, is at the edges of the community and participates and respects and loves the community, but is not themselves of it. And I think there are so many people who would fit into that category now that there is an opportunity to my colleague, Sue Phillips, always talks about her love of Unitarian Universalism because it's a religion of claiming and being claimed. And I wonder how the Jewish world might claim people at the edges, not in a way of like to belong, you have to do these things and you have to, you know, Jewish identity, blah, 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 blah. But because there are these relationships of love and mutual respect, that there is a way of being part of this wider community in a way that yeah, there hasn't but, been. But Cuthbert, that, that gets me thinking about something yeah. that is also like part of what gives you meaning in a community is that the community has boundaries. It differentiates between us and them, not in a bad way, between those who belong and those who don't. We kind of live in a time in which like everything that is good is without borders, like doctrines without borders and this without borders. And maybe we need borders to have a religious experience. A hundred percent. But we also need pathways in and pathways out. And I don't mean conversion. I really don't. I mean, the creativity of thinking of more than one category. And I think you're seeing that now with real focus on Jews of color and thinking about Sephardic and Ashkenazi, right? Like there's a whole conversation about making space for more types of Judaism within the Jewish world. And this just feels like a really interesting, I'll give you an example of where I felt this happen in a very small way recently. I live in Brooklyn and I went to a performance at National Sword which is this wonderful arts venue, very small space in in Williamsburg. And it was a Hawaiian woman who lives in Hawaii, has trained and teaches and leads a community of dance and chant and cultural and, and memory and environmental activism. Amazing woman. And during the performance, she had this gift of deeply being in her own identity and own context having taught and lifted up these dancers and musicians and activists who had come with her, who lived here and performed the traditional cultural practices of Hawaii, and then extended this invitation to us as an audience 
that we were now part of not the same depth, not the same level of commitment and knowledge and everything else. But she basically spoke into reality, this sense of interconnectedness and gave us a place in the wider community. And I think that's what I'm thinking that not just Judaism, all religious institutions and, and, and traditions have is to help people not have to be exhausted and struggling to make things by themselves, but that they have at least one string that ties them to something bigger than themselves. And that doesn't overwhelm them and drown them in responsibilities and things that they don't necessarily want at this moment, but gives them a pathway in that doesn't immediately demand A, B, and C. And that I think we're still missing. Yeah, what you're saying about Hawaiian dances, and it makes me think that one of the basic challenges that we have in this day and age is to articulate the particular with the universal. And we see that a lot in the case of Israel, which is is in the thick of this battle now between the Jewish and the universal. But Judaism, in a way, exemplifies that tension, like, I don't know how familiar, but when we say Kiddush every Shabbat, we talk about this is in memory of the creation, a universal event, and this is in memory of the exodus from Egypt, a particular event. So Judaism was always about trying to articulate the universal or the particular, or rather, what can you give the universal by strengthening your particularity? And I think that today we lost that, right? Like there's, there seems to be like two paradigms. One is a kind of ex- tribal fascism, for lack of a better term, yeah. like exclusionary sort of Absolutely. hate of the other. But then a multicultural fascism too, in which they say that particularism in and of itself, yeah. it's illegitimate, right? And can we navigate in religious thinking something that is deeply particular mm. and yet deeply universal at the same mm-hmm. time? I think that's where most of the people are. People want a particular identity, but people don't want that identity to be exclusionary of their yeah. contacts with the world. Well, and not just with others, but within themselves. And right. I think this is the trick is that a lot of people, myself included, have multiple belongings in terms right. of those religious, even just keep it simple to religious identities. We're recording this on a Friday morning. I'm literally hosting a Shabbat this evening with a bunch of Jewish friends because we rotate who hosts. And so like, I'm in this weird position. I'm not leading the press. Like I'm not baking the challah, but like it is in my house. And so like, here I am participating in this tradition with people who I love, which includes one person who's converted, a gay couple who are getting married in a couple of weeks, like expression of Judaism and the roots into it are, are many and diverse. But at the same time, I'm connected to Christian communities and and Buddhist practice and various other things. And so anything that would demand saying, because you are particular this, you cannot be particular that. For me, it's a choice, but it's going to be real limiting. And so I think for in the Jewish conversation, often it gets presented as how can we be us while being open to the rest of the world? When I think the question is more about how can we be us and have space for the other we's that the us's are part of. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's, made, that's different for different people. So, but- so there's sort of an isomorphism, like meaning you replicate the diversity of the world inside exactly. yourself, whether you exactly. want it or not. Exactly. And therefore, the wrestling between the universal and the particular happens on a society level, but it happens inside your heart and mind Absolutely. as well. And, and and if we, meaning the Jews and allies, and can actually propose the world a way of dealing with that tension in a constructive yes. way, we would be doing maybe a service to humanity. Uh, I think so. 
I think so. And the image I always go back to is the game Trivial Pursuit, where you have a pie and then you have to put little, there are six little colored pieces that go into the, that make the full pie. I think there's so much attention focused on what does our little slice of the pie look like, our, our Jewish slice. And I think all religious institutions should be asking, how do we build the empty pot into which those slices can go, right? right. That's the infrastructure that's missing and that people are exhausted of trying to create themselves. Yeah. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you know, exactly. used to say, yeah. he used to say, what is our voice in the conversation of humanity? And, and he's a, mm. I find that a very deep phrase because you need to know your voice. Then your voice doesn't have any meaning if it's not inserted into a conversation of humanity. In other words, the two elements of the barbell here have to be very strong. You need to know your voice because if not, what are you giving to the universe? No doubt. You're no melting doubt. into something without. Yeah. And then, but if you don't give it to the world, so what's your mission? Why do you exist as a people if you're not bringing something to humanity? Yes. I mean, I'm going to dare to, to try to speak beyond Rabbi Sachs, which I'm very nervous to do. But I think, yes, yes it's your voice. Yes. Yes, it's contributing to the world, but it's also like help set up the context for the conversation. Like that's the right. thing that I'm pointing to with the pan. The terms, <laughs> metaphor. The terms of the debate. The terms exactly. Of because like, where are we meaning to have that conversation? Who's bringing the food? Like but, it's the but, infrastructure but, and, for the conversation as much as the conversation itself. And there too, Talmudic debate can be a model for I love conversation. it. Now, let me change the tag here for a second. In much of your writing, and I've been consciously avoiding it, you talk a lot about the organizational scaffolding of the religious experience, right? You, you yeah. talk about soul cycle, yeah. and different organizational models and different models of belonging that we as people that are interested in the religious experience can adopt or learn from and what have you. That's sort of amazing. And you, you mentioned a little bit of it, but the reason why I've been avoiding it is because I'm wondering whether the problem is not one of structures and mm. formats and venues, but a problem of ideas. Meaning, yeah, it's fine to learn from the soul cycle model and what yeah. have you, but if we don't have theologians in the Jewish communities, if we don't have people that, yeah. if we don't have a new Hessian, a new Mordechai Kaplan, a new yeah. Soloveitchik, yeah. like what are we going, like all these things that we were talking about on the spiritual level, like building empty frameworks in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm obviously a huge fan of the theologians and after finishing a book all about practices and structures, all I actually wanted to talk about was theology. So I do understand what you're saying. I have to believe that those people are, are there and I have to believe that those ideas are always being created. I mean, I've loved learning from Ilya Delio, for example, who's a nun and a scientist who has just done the most incredibly creative theology work. She's the head of theology at Villanova University, where she she's repositioning where yeah. God is in a way that I find extremely alive, where she's talking, you know, God is, is not above us. She says one thing that is very intuitive to this kind of contemporary context, which is like, yes, God is inside of us, but also God is ahead of us. And so she's creating this kind of like evolutionary language, or she's using an evolutionary language to talk about what it means to be human. Anyway, so those people are out there. I really do think so. 
often they're maybe not the best at communicating it to a wide audience. And that's right. maybe some of the gifts of a Kaplan and a Heschel. So let's have faith they are out yeah. there. But yeah. of course, I agree with you. Here's the thing I think that is important though, which is those ideas don't come out of nothing. And I think often new contexts and structures is where new theology happens, right? It's when people have experiences that need new meaning making stories or ideas. That's where it, a lot of that creativity comes from. The, so yeah, so may, maybe in that way, I'm a bit of a structuralist. So, philosophy follows sociology in a way. Like in other words, Jews confronted the sociological challenge of modernity, which was yes. economical, social exactly. breakdown of structures. And then from that, yeah. a new theology emerged, maybe. And you're, and you're seeing it, I think, especially with environmental issues now, right? Like there's so much theological work happening around climate and, and biodiversity loss and new relationships to place and so I, I do see it happen a little bit, but yeah, no doubt there's more to be done. We, we do live in a country uh, that does not value philosophy and ideas a lot. That's true. Like Alexis As, de Tocqueville said it, I haven't seen in the civilized world that pays less attention to philosophy than the United States. And this is, of course, we don't, we won't have the time to get into this, but I like to finish where we started, which is yeah. the human being is probably a different human being than the one that existed. 200 years ago, meaning mm. the hyper empowerment of the individual and the question on the one hand, and on the other hand, the questions about artificial intelligence, genetic yes. engineering are actually changing the nature of yes. humanity. It is as though we need a religion for human 2.0 and we're late because those yeah. changes are happening and we don't have the theological, ideological underpinning to, to understand them or to make sense of them. Absolutely. And I think if we're not careful, the authors of religion 2.0 for the next phase of human life will come from the corporate board right. office and not from the shul. And I think that for me is having flirted a little bit with spirituality in the kind of corporate workplace I have stepped away conclusively from anything that does that because the premise is so flawed and the theological resources are so few. And so I am deeply committed. Sometimes people look at me and think like, oh, you're this anti-institutionist and blah, blah, blah. And the very opposite is true. Like I am deeply committed to the flourishing of tradition because I see how deeply it's needed because without it, we are screwed. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, the question is, how do we help these timeless truths and the rigor of, and this is what I love about the Jewish tradition, is the rigor of debate and conversation and, right. and engaging with text and tradition. How do we let those things flourish in a time where there are so few spaces where that kind of conversation is welcome and where it's so desperately needed? So for our next conversation, we're going to talk about <laughs> what is human 2.0 and how yeah. religion can help him or her survive. But to finish, when you look at the landscape of religion and the state mm. of the world and the state of belonging and community, what gives you hope? I've learned that when we look at things that are big, I feel hopeless. And when I look at the small, I feel hopeful. So every Monday on the third Monday of the month, I gather a group of people to come sing in my living room. And every time there's someone new who leaves just being like, oh, I didn't know this was possible. And for me, that's that's where I get my hope from is seeing people remember something that they didn't know they knew when they're in touch with some of these ancient practices and 
ideas. And it, for me, I'm, I'm increasingly less interested in conversation and more in experience. So singing together, dancing together, eating together, even at a wedding. Those are the moments when I'm like, yeah, we will always come back to this because where else do we have to go for the biggest things in life? Beautiful. Thank you so, so much, Kasper. Thank you, Andres. And so good to see you. Thanks so much to Kasper Turquil. You can learn more about Kasper's effort to create spiritual communities at thenearness.coop. That's thenearness.coop. Thanks so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us, write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoili. Now I leave you with a quote from George Archaw, who wrote, I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. So keep doing stuff for the community, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.